If you'll please turn in your Bibles uh, with me to 1 Timothy. Uh, we're continuing our new series in 1 Timothy this morning, and we're going to be reading from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through to verse 20 uh, for our next section this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and reading from verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Just so far in God's word this morning, uh, Kyle has already prayed uh, for God's blessing to be upon us as we come to this portion now. So if you are uh, just new to us this morning or you weren't here last week, uh, we started a new series last week in Paul's letter to First Timothy, the first of these pastoral epistles. Timothy was a young man who had been trained by the Apostle Paul in the gospel ministry as he had accompanied Paul on his uh, missionary journeys. A man who Paul had now deployed to bring correction and instruction and encouragement and oversight to the church in Ephesus, which was going through many challenges. This was a church that Paul had been instrumental in establishing. And Paul's first point to, to Timothy, which we saw last week, was to tackle the problem of false teaching in the church. A problem which back in Acts chapter 20 Paul had warned the elders about, but about 10 years later now nevertheless had become a real problem. Men, it seems, had risen up uh, from within the church, some of the leaders of the church, who were teaching what Paul called a different doctrine. Somehow it involved persuading the church majority of Gentile believers to turn back to Jewish practices, uh, the Jewish practices of the law, uh, after they had been saved by grace. The teaching was subtle, and we'll see more of that in, uh, in the weeks and months ahead, but it was causing the church to, to gradually swerve away from the truth, uh, which they had received from Paul. And so Paul urges Timothy to, to charge or to command these men to stop their false teaching and then he corrects the church's understanding by helping to, to lay down the proper, the right understanding of the place of the law uh, in the life of a believer. 
And so because of this false teaching regarding the purpose of the law, it's not surprising now that following that, Paul moves on to speak next about the centrality of grace. And he uses his own life as an example. Uh, He shows Timothy and he shows the church in Ephesus the crucial importance of clearly understanding and appreciating God's grace to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so last week we considered uh, the sermon under the heading of building on the foundation of truth. And today we move on to see what Paul teaches us about building on the foundation of grace. I think this is a timely reminder for us as the modern church as well. Because we find that there are some churches today that major on truth. Churches that major on doctrine and teaching and preaching, but sadly, where often you find very little grace. These churches often come across as very legalistic and judgmental of those who don't do church exactly the same way that they believe it should be done. But I think more generally a problem today is many churches in our day and age which major on grace on the multifaceted dimensions of God's grace to us on the the freedom and and the fellowship which flows out of grace but sadly often in those churches there seems to be very little emphasis on truth and theologically and doctrinally anything goes but when we consider that everything we are as Christians and everything we are supposed to be as the church is meant to be squarely based on the person of Jesus Christ, well, if that's true, then there should not be a compromise between truth and grace. We are meant to major on both. We we see this in the Apostle John's summary of Jesus in John uh, chapter 1, verse 14 to 17. As John is introducing Jesus to us, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. How does he describe him? Full of grace and truth. Then he goes on and he says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. So as John introduces Jesus to us, the word of God who became flesh, he says that the very glory of God himself is seen in the Son of God in what way? In that Jesus was full of both grace and truth. There was no compromise in the person of Jesus Christ. He explains that the law had its place under Moses and the the purpose of the law we saw last week was to lead us to Christ. But now that Christ has come, you and I have received both grace and truth through Jesus Christ. And so it's wonderful as we look at Paul's letter to Timothy as he's wanting to kind of reestablish the foundations of the church at Ephesus and to correct the errors that he firstly writes to Timothy about building on the foundation of truth as we saw last week in the first 11 verses but now to move on and to instruct the church about continuing to build on a foundation of grace in verses 12 to 20. And so the next section is all about the grace of God. And I think it's a, it's a necessary correction. It was certainly a necessary correction for the false teachers in Ephesus. 
And uh, perhaps it's a timeless reminder for us today to always keep the cross and the gospel of God's grace firmly in our sights as Christians. So in the first place in this morning, Paul wants us to see the source of grace in verse 12. The, the very nature of that word, grace, speaks of its source being outside of yourself. Grace is God's unmerited favor to you and I, his undeserved blessing to those who have no right whatsoever to claim anything for ourselves. So in confronting the errors of these teachers of the law, he starts by showing us that the source of God's grace is Jesus Christ. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now we hopefully know that all good gifts come to us from God. And, and here specifically, Paul thankfully acknowledges the special grace that he has been given by Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, who gave me strength and who appointed me to his service. Now, what exactly is the grace that... Paul received in Jesus Christ or from Jesus Christ. Well, I think to start with, it's the same grace that every single one of us receive when we place our trust in Jesus Christ. I think we, we use the word grace so often, do we really understand what we are talking about when we speak of God's grace to us? And as we look more widely, uh, particularly if you were to look, for example, at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the beginning part of, of that letter, he speaks about the grace of God in forgiving our sins. It's God's grace that he forgives us. It's the grace of God that sets us free from condemnation. It's the grace of God that then lavishes on us the blessings of adoption, adoption into the family of God. And it's ultimately the grace of God that gives us eternal life. But for each one of us, the saving grace of God is applied to us individually in our unique circumstances of life. And it's certainly this which Paul has in mind as we're going to see uh, when we get to verse 13. Paul was not a nice guy before he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus in the book of Acts. Paul was not just the class bully. He was not even the grade 7 bully. He was not even the matric bully. Paul was the national Jewish bully. He was appointed by the chief priests and the leaders of the land to go and persecute and arrest all the Christians. So for Paul, God's grace was especially clear because of what he was before he became a Christian, before God saved him. Look at how he puts this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But here it is, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul was deeply aware that not only his salvation, but his appointment to this high calling of apostle and all the strength that he needed to accomplish his faithful service of God, it was all 
because of the grace of God to him in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul lived every day of his life with the deep awareness that God was the source of the grace that he needed, not only as a Christian, uh, but particularly as an apostle. In the second place then, we see the transformation of grace in verse 13 and 14. Now, every person who becomes a Christian should be able to acknowledge that an incredible supernatural transformation has taken place in your life. I'm sure that almost every one of you sitting here today would at least in a general sense call yourself a Christian. So can you really say that as you consider your life as a Christian that an incredible supernatural transformation has taken place? Now, we know that not everyone will have as dramatic a turnaround as Paul, uh, though many people do, but we should all be able to speak of a transformation of grace which has taken place firstly in our hearts and then in our lives ever since the day we trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. Paul says in verse 13, he says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. So yeah, Paul recounts, without going into all the details, something of the person he was before he met Jesus. He says, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor of the church. I was Insolent, I was rude, I was disrespectful, I was that kind of an opponent to Jesus. And then comes one of those wonderful but God statements in Scripture. He says, I was those things formerly, but now I have received mercy. Praise God for his saving grace to us in Christ. A grace which not only reveals Christ to us, but then imparts this life-changing transformation from what we once were to what we now become in Christ. Because of God's transforming grace, Paul was no longer the person he used to be. Because God's grace always brings about this supernatural work of transforming us into the likeness of Christ. So here's a simple test this morning to see if you really are a Christian. Can you, with Paul, say, formerly I was X, Y, Z. Formerly I was a selfish proud, rude person. Formerly I was addicted to alcohol or pornography or other substances. Formerly I was hot-tempered and impatient. Formerly I was self-obsessed and a, and a gossip. I was lustful and jealous. I was unkind and bitter. And in my heart, even though I hid it from most people, I was a lover of self and of pleasure and comfort and position and success. And Jesus Christ was nothing to me. But I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with faith 
and love that are in Christ Jesus. Can you say that with Paul today? If not, then it may well be that you are not yet saved. And you need to ask God to reveal to you his saving grace in Jesus Christ today as he did to Paul. Before we move on, I just want to say something about verse 13 which could possibly be misunderstood. Paul says that he received mercy because he had formerly acted ignorantly in unbelief. What does he mean by that? Well, the Bible shows us that there are two kinds of heart attitudes which motivate our sinful behavior. And while both are wrong uh, and both result in condemnation outside of Jesus Christ, the one heart attitude is far more dangerous and condemning. And Paul is drawing a distinction here between those who act sinfully against God out of ignorance of the truth, ignorance of who Jesus really is, and what he came to do for us on the cross, there's those who sin out of ignorance of that. And then there are those who sin willfully, knowingly, after receiving the knowledge of the truth of God in his word, and yet who continue to openly reject the truth which has been revealed to them. They're in a, a different category. How we see in the book of Hebrews, a very solemn warning to those who know the truth about Jesus, but who reject him openly by disobeying him through their sinful lives. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has now trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, coming back to 1 Timothy 13, Paul is saying in this verse not that he deserved to, to be saved because he acted in ignorance, but he says he was offered mercy. He was not treated as his sins deserved because he was blinded in ignorance and unbelief. Every single one of us, at one point in our lives, we acted in ignorance of who Jesus is and what he came to do for us. But in God's merciful providence, through perhaps your Christian family, that you grew up in or, or through the church that you were part of. You heard the gospel and so you are no longer ignorant of the truth. And so this is a very stern warning to those of you here today who have perhaps been in church, been around Christianity for many years. You've been taught the truth of Jesus many times. You've heard the way of salvation explained to you on many occasions you understand what the Bible says about sin and judgment? You know what it is to trust in Jesus for salvation? It's not a hard concept to get hard hold of. And yet you repeatedly with full knowledge of that truth 
you continue to harden your heart in disobedience. Be warned today that God's patience towards willful disobedience and rejection is not forever. And the day may soon come where he hands you over to your sinful desires. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1. He gives you over. Your heart is hardened. Your mind is darkened. And you are handed over to the very evil passions and desires that you put ahead of God. And you find yourself in that God-forsaken place where the mercy of Jesus Christ is no longer offered to you. I pray that that would be true of none of us who know the truth, but that we would respond to Jesus Christ. Let's move on in our passage then to see in the third place the wonderful good news of the gospel of grace in verse 15. After considering the source of grace and the transformation uh, which God's grace brings about in our, in our lives, Paul now turns to proclaim the, the gospel, the good news of God's grace to sinners. Verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus or Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now maybe there are some of you who are still a little bit worried about what I've just said from Hebrews chapter 10, about being outside of the place where the mercy of God is no longer offered to you. That's a real warning from God's word. And if that's you today, take hope, take encouragement from what Paul says here, that what he's about to say in verse 15 is absolutely trustworthy. It is fully reliable. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now that is just amazing good news. The fact that you are here today, if that previous description of someone who is hardened against the truth, the fact that you're here today is still the evidence that God has not yet withdrawn his offer of mercy and grace to you. Instead, he, he sent his son Jesus into the world to save sinners just like you and me, of whom I am the foremost. I'm pausing because I was hoping that someone would say, no, Clinton, I'm the worst. <laughs> and then another, no, Clinton, I'm the worst. I think this is what Paul is saying here as he considers his own heart before the glory and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. He acknowledges that Jesus came into the world to die for him because he is the worst of sinners. No, Paul, I'm the worst of sinners. If you cannot identify with Paul in saying the same thing about yourself this morning, it means that somehow you are still trusting in your own righteousness. If you're not able to say, I am the worst of sinners, it means that you think that something of you is worth merit before God. Something in you makes you better than the person next to you or the person in front of you, or the person outside. No, says Paul. 
There is nothing about me, nothing even about my most righteous deeds, which is of any value to my salvation. I am indeed the worst of sinners, but guess what? Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me. So praise God for the gospel of grace this morning. Listen to how Paul or how much he believed this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. Paul says, If anyone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, top rung, a Pharisee, as for zeal, I persecuted the church as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, literally dung that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Do you consider all your most righteous deeds, yes, your very best behavior, all that you've done for God in the context of the Honey Ridge Baptist Church, maybe even the grandest of all your human achievements, do you consider them as done in comparison to the righteousness which comes by faith in Jesus Christ? If not, then you do not yet understand the gospel of God's grace and you are somehow still relying on your own works. Think about that. You are relying on your works of done to somehow save you. Well, in the fourth place then, Paul wants us to move on and he wants us to see the purpose of grace. In verse 16, have you ever pondered the question as you consider what we've just talked about, your God's grace to you in salvation, what you once were, what you now are in Christ? Have you ever asked the question, why me? Why did Jesus choose to save me? Why did he show his grace, this grace that we've been talking about, to such a vile sinner as me? Well, Paul thought about that question. And he shares the answer. And I believe the answer is the same answer that we should all be able to give today. Look at verse 16. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost of sinners, as the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I'm sure that there are multiple purposes which God has in saving us. But Paul's conclusion is that this is the primary reason he was saved that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, his perfect grace in saving Paul. 
so that he would be an example to those who would believe on Jesus for eternal life. Paul here is wanting to glorify God's grace to him by showing that if someone as vile as he could be saved, then you and I can be saved too. That's good news. And I would propose that the same purpose continues in your salvation and mine. Each one of us becomes a similar example. Each one of us is a trophy of God's grace. And we are saved to highlight the patience of God and the love of God and the mercy and the kindness of God in saving you, in saving me from sin and rebellion so that others would see that example and they would believe on Jesus Christ. So this is where I am really saddened by so-called testimonies of so many who call themselves Christians these days. When you ask a Christian with great anticipation, tell me about your salvation. Won't you share your testimony with me? Only to hear something along the lines of, well, you know, I've always gone to church. I've never done anything really bad. And I've always loved Jesus. And I try my best to be a good person. I can just hear Paul crying out, No! May it never be. I received mercy as the worst of sinners so that Jesus Christ may be glorified in his display of grace and patience to me so that others might be saved. Salvation today is too often presented as something entirely individualistic. And yes, it certainly is at its foundational level a personal encounter that you and I have with with Jesus Christ but we are not simply saved for our own blessing and eternal security if that was God's purpose he would save you and then simply zap you up to heaven but no he leaves us on earth to be living examples of God's grace to those around us so that they too might believe in Jesus So if you are a Christian today, God saved you for a purpose. Contrary to what the prosperity preachers will tell you today, God's purpose in saving you is not to make you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. God's purpose in saving you is to display his grace in salvation to those around you to your unbelieving spouse, to your unbelieving children or your colleagues at work or your friends at school, that they too might see the grace of God to you and believe in him. No one has ever been saved by the testimony of someone who says, I was born basically good and I try hard to please God. No one. But every time we display the grace of God in saving me as a vile sinner, people are drawn to Jesus. So, do you see this purpose in your salvation? Do you see that God has saved you to be a means of reflecting His glorious grace to others? 
so that they might turn to Jesus? Or has your salvation become all about you, taking God's grace for granted without any grander and wider kingdom purpose? If so, it doesn't mean you're not saved, but it does mean that you are missing out on probably the most vital purpose for which Christ Jesus has shown you grace, that you might radiate his glory and grace to those around you that they might believe in him. We're almost done this morning, but Paul has one more thing for us to learn about God's grace, and then he ends with a word of exhortation. And so in the fifth place, uh, Paul wants us to see the response of grace, and that's in verse 17. And verse 17 is really not part of Paul's teaching to Timothy. Um, It really is just a spontaneous outburst of praise in the light of all that he has been teaching Timothy and the Ephesians about grace. So although he's not specifically teaching Timothy here, I think he is, in his example, a loud gramophone of instruction to us about the right response to God's grace. So after having considered the grace of God to him as the chief of sinners and recognizing God's abundant mercy in the gospel and reflected on the transforming grace in his life, that others too might believe in Jesus. Paul is just so overwhelmed with the praise and the worship of God that he breaks out in this doxology. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm so grateful to God that Honeyridge Baptist Church is a church which loves to sing. And we usually refer to our time of singing as praise and worship. And, and there is something wonderful about coming together with gifted musicians and singers and with great songs and to sing together as God's people. But if we are honest, how often are we caught up in the enjoyment of worship singing as an end in itself? How often have you gone home after church and said, I really didn't enjoy that song. I really didn't enjoy the tune of that song. Did you notice that the the drummer was off beat with the pianist? Did you notice that the guitarist was off key? Did you notice that Carl's voice is sick today so he didn't even lift the mic to his mouth? What have we done? We've made it about us. If you can go home and say, did you notice the words of that song did not glorify Christ? Please come and see me. You see how subtle it is. We've made it into something about ourselves. But here we see that it was Paul's deep understanding of God's grace, his his personal grace in saving Paul. That when Paul got this, when when he understood who Jesus is and what he had done for him and his purpose in saving him, when he grasped what all of that meant, he didn't need a worship band. He didn't need music. He didn't need cool tunes and rhyming words. He simply poured out his heart to God in worship and adoration. Verse 17 is what it means to to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And yes, music and tunes and songs and joining together as a congregation, these are wonderful blessings from God, but it means nothing if what we sing is not an expression of and an overflow of our heart for Jesus and for his grace to us in the gospel. 
And so we all need to examine our hearts today to see whether we really do still marvel at God's grace. And if not, why not? What's changed? When last have you expressed this kind of doxology to, to God for His grace to you? With or without music, in private or corporately, it doesn't matter, aloud or silently in your heart before God. Are you a true worshiper of God because of His saving grace to you as the foremost of sinners? And then in the final place, and with this I'm going to close, the, the foundation of grace which Paul has laid down for Timothy and for us today, it needs to be guarded. It needs to be protected. And so in the final place, we just see the guarding of grace in verse 18 to 20. Um, the gospel is always going to be under attack, and so it must be guarded. Sometimes the attacks come from outside, from governments, from religious or social opposition to what we believe. Sometimes the opposition is, is, as in Ephesus, from within, inside the church, through various degrees of false teaching. Sometimes, if we're honest, the attack against the gospel comes from within our own hearts. As we become so familiar and complacent with the things of God, we, we take God's grace for granted. We don't have time to unpack these verses this morning except to just leave you with the thrust of what Paul says to Timothy. Do whatever it takes to guard the grace of God that has been entrusted to you. That's the gospel. Verse 18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul's charge to Timothy is to guard the gospel. And, and we do this in two ways. Firstly, on a personal level, we must fight the good fight. We must hold on to our faith with a good conscience and we must be willing to fight at all costs as a soldier defends his country. That's the language that's being used here. Wage the warfare, hold on to the faith with a good conscience. Let nothing swerve you from the gospel. That's the first aspect. But then secondly, we guard the gospel by protecting the purity of the church. And so Paul says he's had to put certain men out of the church. He's had to hand them over to Satan so that they will no longer lead people astray from the grace of God through their false teaching. The sequence is important. The guarding of the grace of the gospel starts with us individually embracing and marveling and then fighting for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel in our own lives. And then we are to, as those who are faithful on a personal level, corporately to guard the truth and the purity of the church. See, when we lose sight of grace, when we lose sight of what we once were without it, when we lose sight of what we actually now are because of it, what God desires to accomplish through grace and how we are to live in a worshipful response to it, when we lose sight of grace, we will very quickly fall into the trap of false teaching. 
perhaps legalism on the one hand or perhaps lawlessness on the other, abusing God's grace as a license to sin. And in the process, we end up shipwrecked in the faith. So Paul says, keep Christ always before you. Begin each day at the foot of the cross. Yes, fight the good fight. Hold firm to your faith in Jesus Christ. And in doing this, you will weather the storms of life and you will fulfill the good purpose of God in making you one of his children. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you uh, again this morning for your word. We thank you for the wonderful balance which is contained in your word. As we've just looked at this first chapter of 1 Timothy to see the, the balance between the high view of truth and the high view of grace that should characterize our lives as Christians. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us if we perhaps have a bias towards truth at the expense of grace or perhaps a bias towards grace at the expense of truth. Help us to return back to the Lord Jesus Christ who fully displays the glory of God, both in truth and in grace. Lord, help us, we pray, to be people who live grace-motivated and grace-energized lives. Help us as a church to guard the gospel that you've entrusted to us to preserve the purity of the church, that we might continue to be your faithful witnesses so that others might see and be drawn to Jesus Christ and believe. Won't you be pleased to do that work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.